This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. And I'm happy to have with me today Kevin Levin. He is a Civil War historian, a speaker, teacher. He also wrote a book entitled... Hang on, I had it here just in front of me. Oh, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Kevin, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks. So the reason you caught my eye was because I saw in your Substack that you wrote a story about my hometown a little bit. Uh, the headline, Augusta, Georgia's Monument to White Supremacy Still Stands. Uh, being a native of Augusta, I know that Augusta, Georgia, the city proper, is a majority minority city, 55% African-American population. And... Augusta is one of those cities as well, being in a state like Georgia, where they'd like to get rid of this sort of stuff, these, uh, these, these Confederate monuments. They'd like to, to stow them away, get them out of uh, public view, if, if at all possible. But in a lot of cases, their hands are tied by state laws that were enacted hastily uh, in the 2019-2020 uh, civil rights uh, you know, brouhaha. Catch us up on this particular monument, and then I want to dive into some history that even I didn't know anything about, and I'm a history nut. Yeah, well, again, thanks for the invitation. This is a fascinating monument, first, both in terms of its size. It's a massive Confederate monument on one of the main streets in downtown Augusta. Mm -hmm. The date is really interesting. It was dedicated on uh, in 1878, which is interesting because up to that point, most Confederate monuments had been dedicated in cemeteries. Mm. And so the preoccupation with these commemorations uh, was with the dead, right? Mourning the dead. Yeah. And by the late 1870s, as we move out of this period called Reconstruction, you begin to see these monuments move into more public spaces. And it's no longer just about mourning uh, the Confederate dead. It's also about celebrating the memory of the Confederacy in connection with a return to white supremacy and the eventual establishment of a Jim Crow culture. And so this is one of those early monuments, you know, that takes us into this second phase of monument buildings uh, throughout the former Confederate states. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk about its size and, 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 you know, having lived in Augusta, having lived in cities like New Orleans, these, these massive monuments, I, I, I call them a, a relic of TDS, you know, tiny <laughs> syndrome, uh, because, because of their size. But, but they're also kind of audacious with some of the uh, inscriptions on them. This one in particular just kind of takes your breath away if you don't pay attention to it. That's right. I mean, it, it inscribed on the monument, it says, no nation rose so white and fair, none <laughs> fell so pure of crime. It's, it's part of a much longer inscription, but it, it speaks to the fact that white Southerners during this period did not try to hide the sort of connection between the dedication of, com of Confederate monuments and the need to reestablish and maintain white supremacy, um, all with the Civil War looming um, around everyone, right? So the memory of the war. And so when you see that language, again, so explicit, uh, it's a reminder that this was important to white Southerners. Mm -hmm. They had lived through a defeat in 1865. They had lived through military occupation in much of the former Confederate states by the U.S. Army. Mm -hmm. uh, they had seen African-Americans in positions of power, voting, running for office, winning elected office. And this is a moment where they are actively trying to return uh, to that racial status quo with whites firmly in control. And these monuments are part of that landscape. They help to reinforce uh, that agenda. But Kevin, I thought secession was about states' rights. 
Right. Well, I mean, after, after the war, certainly former Confederates will try to argue uh, that it had nothing to do with slavery. But, you know, any good student of history will turn to what white Southerners were saying in 1861 and, uh -huh. of course, in the years leading up to the war. And they were very explicit that the election of Abraham Lincoln posed a direct threat to the institution of slavery. And, you know, if you look at the states that seceded immediately after Lincoln's election, they're once again very explicit about mm -hmm. um, about slavery as the primary cause. And Georgia's own vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, gave a very well-known speech in 1861 where he declared that slavery was the quote-unquote cornerstone of the Confederacy. So we should take them at their word. And, and you, you mentioned his name, and I think of uh, the John Calhoun Expressway that leads you to that monument in downtown Augusta. And, I mean, there are yeah. still names attached. Uh, Stevens has a state park, I believe, still named after him here sure. in Georgia. So uh, it's not just monuments. It's, it's all over the place, these reminders that we had an era throughout uh, most of these southern states where these Confederate names were even made legendary and attached to buildings and parks. Absolutely. And high, I mean, a highway in the 1980s for crying out loud. That, that's right. And I, again, you know, you've left out one important fact of, of all of this, certainly roads, buildings, parks, you name it, but also the way in which um, Southerners during the post-war period controlled textbooks, mm. specifically history yes. textbooks. And of course we're debating right now this question about how to teach American history. And we often forget uh, that white Southerners, through uh, organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, yes. were very effective throughout much of the 20th century uh, in controlling how students learned about the Civil War and Reconstruction. That's pretty fascinating to me. Uh, real quick, let me reset this. We're on with Kevin Levin, who is a Civil War historian, uh, also author of the uh, the book. Remind me the, the title of the book so I don't look it up again in... in Sure, it's searching for black Confederates. Now, you you uh, you titled that as uh, the Civil War's most persistent myth. Yes. Why why did you word it that way? Oh, because it's it's one of these narratives that uh, looms large over our memory of the Civil War, especially since the 1970s. Neo Confederates today, people who are still committed to honoring their Confederate ancestors in the Confederacy, uh, more generally, have embraced this narrative as a way to push away. Uh, this growing acceptance that slavery was a root cause of the Civil War, that mm. the Confederacy was, in fact, fighting to maintain and even spread the institution of slavery. They were attempting to create an independent slaveholding republic. And so the one way to defend your great-great-grandfather, uh, you know, from charges that, you know, he was fighting to maintain slavery is to say, well, there were also African-Americans fighting alongside your ancestor and loyal to the Confederacy until the very end. Right. And, and this is a very, uh, a myth that uh, first surfaces in the 1970s. Uh, so it's a relatively new uh, myth. Speaking of the 1970s, it wasn't until the 1970s that we started seeing some realization in state school boards that the books had been cooked by, you yeah. mentioned the, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, there's a, uh, an article that I think you can find at theroot.com that talks about some of the textbooks that folks who are in the U.S. Senate today were mm -hmm. taught, misled by, and we're, right. and, and we're only now starting to see a little bit of a, a, a pushback on any notion of cleaning up that decades-long wrong. I mean, you, you see Ron DeSantis is attacking 
uh, AP African American history and and, mm-hmm. and and trying to whitewash, literally whitewash textbooks. Uh, yeah. sp- speak to that movement, this this new wave of 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 history correction. Well, I think it's certainly um, you know rooted in the politics of of, of our current moment, right? Um, you know, it's unfortunate. It certainly itself has its own roots. There's nothing new about uh, this attempt to control how history is taught, because of course the issues couldn't be more important. How we understand American history, how we think about our collective past has everything to do with how we think of ourselves as Americans today. And so the question about whether we start American history at 1776 versus 1619 is all about sort of identity. It's all about, um, again, who we take ourselves to be. And I think uh, it's also about what kinds of voters we will be if depending on, on what narrative we embrace. And I think there's so much at stake uh, when it comes to the teaching of history and other subjects uh, right now uh, that it's no surprise that we're going through this. And again, it's it really is nothing new. But your earlier point about you know elected officials you know learning from these traditional textbooks, um, you know these lost cause textbooks, if you will, is mm-hmm. a reminder of how close we are to this past. Right? Yeah. It's 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 a way in which the the present and the past really do collide. So why are we as a country so triggered uh, at the notion that our history is blemished, that, it, that, it's, that it's not unvarnished? Why, yeah. why, why are we so afraid collectively yeah. to learn that it's not all red, white, and blue, fife and drum, you know, we, we took down the oppressors, rah-rah patriotism? Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I think the first thing to say about that is there is a great deal of consensus across party lines about the teaching of history, and poll after poll shows this. Republicans and Democrats tend to think that we should learn about dark periods in American history, that we should understand okay. the history of slavery and the, you know, the history of white supremacy. Uh, so the polls tell us one thing, but certainly our politicians are able still, I think, to incite the base, if you will. And this is one way to do it. And I think one of the reasons it's easy to do is because there is a very deeply ingrained notion of what you might call American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. that America at its core, it, it is constant, a freedom is constantly expanding. Uh, we're constantly moving closer to uh, the city upon a hill, if you will, uh, that, that uh, was invoked so long ago, um, you know, by the Puritans. Um, and, I think any challenge to that narrative is uh, it makes people feel incredibly defensive, and I think that certainly uh, you know helps us to explain part of um, you know the, um, the the current debate. This feels a lot like another one of those scenarios where the vocal minority, protected by the makeup of the Senate and the Electoral College and gerrymandering, just gets to carry more sway than the majority that you spoke of in polling. That might be the case, um, you know, and I, and I think it's important for us to keep in mind uh, that there is a certain level of agreement, um, you know, between people that crosses party lines because, you know, it's, um, it, it, it gives at least me hope that there is something to build off, uh, build on in terms of future generations, the kinds of conversations that we all, that many of us wish we could have and wish and which we're not having because we are so easily divided. But I think some of the factors that you, you cited are certainly part of that, that, that sort of 
keep us from uh, engaging in those important conversations. So back to the Augusta Monument, uh, the, the, the city sought to have it moved. They wanted to move it to, I think, a cemetery or a, a small park yeah. of some sort. And yeah, right. again, why, why hasn't that been done? That's a tough question. I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with the sort of um, local politics, but mm. I, I suspect, um, you know, it has a, a lot to do with uh, the state laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to do with whether the cemeteries have room. This is, again, this is a very large monument. It uh, is. It's, it's not huge. one of your typical soldier statues that sits on the front lawn of the courthouse. And so, trying to find uh, the proper place, um, finding someone to remove it. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not always easy. Richmond had a very difficult time finding a contractor to remove its uh, Confederate monuments on Monument Avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suspect there's a lot of sort of local politics, bureaucracy that I'm just simply not privy to. Uh, and I don't, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not optimistic. I think uh, there, there's no sign that um it will be removed in uh, in the near future. And, uh, you know, look, the other looming monument in Georgia, of course, as you well know, and your listeners well know, is <laughs> yeah. not far from Atlanta, right. at Stone Mountain. Yeah. And, you know, at Stone Mountain, they're trying to sort of reconfigure the entire landscape to turn it from a lost cause uh, memorial to something more modern, mm-hmm. um, an up-to-date interpretation um, that will at least... Um, you know, rough out the edges, if you will. But, uh, you know, these are very difficult uh, decisions that have to be made on local levels. It's crazy, too. When I think back to being a child growing up and going to Stone Mountain Park, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taught a little bit. There's a, a good bit of living history there and yeah. uh, the, the, the working plantation and, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that the kids like, the paddle boats and the, the, right. the, 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 the huge, uh, the huge, uh, steamship and the the lift and all that fun stuff but yeah. y- you don't even realize until you pull back and look as an adult like oh, wow there's a lot of pro-southern indoctrinative sort of rah-rah there oh i mean it is yeah it is rich with all that history i mean this is you know stone mountain was really the site where the ku klux klan um mm-hmm. you know the second generation of the clan if you will uh, started up in in 1915, and uh, it's been a rallying point for the Klan and other white terrorist groups since then. Uh, and so it is it is problematic on any number of levels. Yeah. And whether they're able to sort of you know work through all of these issues, we'll have to see. But you know, one of the things I was trying to get at in the post I wrote yesterday or a couple days ago about Augusta is that the Klan, uh, the history of the Klan is wrapped up in that monument as well, or, or I should say the Red Shirts, mm-hmm. which is a Klan-like organization that took part in the dedication ceremony uh, in Augusta in 1878. And it's on that note that I want to uh, pause real quick. We're going to take a quick break and come back. I'm going to let you tell me a story or tell our, our audience a story that I, I had never heard before. And I grew up, again, I grew up in Augusta. I, I'm a Civil War junkie, uh, like a, just an American historian. Jun- I mean, I just can't get enough of this stuff. And yet, I read your, your article yesterday. I'm going to share it in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com, by the way. And I was just blown away that this is yet another story that I hadn't heard about. It's one of those that I, I figure I'd be sitting on the couch on Sunday and Henry Louis Gates would be telling me about it on PBS because <laughs> it's not getting taught in American schools. And that's so maddening. 
We're on with uh, Kevin Levin, author of the book Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, wrote a nice article about a Civil War monument still standing in downtown Augusta today, inexplicably. We'll have him, and he'll tell that story when we come back after the break here on The Ron Show on the America One Radio app and on AmericaOneRadio.com. Don't miss that. More Ron Show on America One Radio next. 